Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Today's guest is a familiar face to millions all over the world as a BBC newsreader and foreign correspondent with a career spanning three decades. He's covered some of the biggest stories of our time, from Hurricane Katrina to the COVID pandemic and 9-11. He's reported from the front lines of conflicts in Africa, the Middle East, and covered wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and most recently, Ukraine. Reporting from the BBC from the roof of a hotel in the capital, Kiev, when the war broke out, a site that many of us will remember. He's the host of Mastermind. Yes, of course, it is Clive Myrie. Clive recently swapped to the BBC studios for sun-drenched Italian countryside with his first travel show, Clive Myrie's Italian Road Trip, a 15-part series which follows Clive as he embarks on a captivating journey around the country, immersing himself in its culture, its rich history and local cuisine, from its heel to its very top. So we, of course, chat about that, as well as his hugely varied career, which has taken him to over 80 countries in itself. Clive recently swapped to the BBC studios for sun-drenched Italian countryside with his first travel show, Clive Myrie's Italian Road Trip, a 15-part series which follows Clive as he embarks on a gorgeous journey around the country, immersing himself in its culture, rich history and local cuisine from the heel right to its top. So we, of course, chat about that, as well as his hugely varied career, which has taken him to over 80 countries in itself. So there's a lot to cover from Jamaica to Japan, Italy to Washington, D.C. and much more. Let's get started with the travel diaries of Clive Myrie. Clive Myrie, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. Thank you so much for coming here today. How are you? I am very well, very well, thank you. It has been, I imagine, a rather busy few days uh, for listeners listening later. Later on, we have just had the coronation of King Charles here in London. And yeah, what, what's it been like? <laughs> well, that was intense. Wet, soggy um, <laughs> on the Saturday, the day of the actual crowning, uh, which was which was a shame. Mm. Um, but it meant that something like two or three thousand people who were in the bleachers opposite Buckingham Palace um, they got absolutely soaked because they weren't allowed to have umbrellas. They weren't allowed to have umbrellas. They I didn't realise that. I guess that, it would obscure the... Exactly. Yeah. It would block the views of, yeah. uh, of the people behind. And um, so they just sat there getting soaked. That's dedication for it, you, it isn't is, it? It My is. Goodness. But having said that, I mean, they saw... They saw the, uh, the coach leave Buckingham Palace um, with all the, uh, all the attendant pageantry and grenadier guards and in their bearskins and whatever around. And then they saw the gold state coach return yes. with the newly crowned monarchs. So to get a glimpse of that up close must have been, well, it was incredible for me. Uh, so I suspect it was uh, probably incredible for the people who sat out there in the rain. And, and maybe that... Um, Maybe that was enough compensation, mm. I hope, mm. for them. I suppose it also, the day also made you realise, actually, that it's an in a weird situation 
golden robes, holy yeah. anointing. Yeah. You know, the public weren't allowed to see that. It was behind a screen because it's essentially God that's seeing it. That's what's the, that's what the point of that is. So um, the king and queen, their backs were to the, uh, the main part of the church. And one hopes that all that surrounding the monarchy, the symbolism and the diamonds and the throne and the crown, that all that ends up in a monarchy that, that is activist, that mm. does stuff. Mm. Or else it is just artifice, or else it is just a whole bunch of symbols. And I think someone like Charles has shown throughout his life as Prince of Wales that, you know, he'll get stuck in and he'll make his views count and he will say what he needs to say. And, uh, you know, way because ahead of his time. you've met him, haven't you? You've I have, him, yeah. yes, yes, I have. And I think that's what you want from a royal family. It's it's difficult because I think a lot of people are saying, well, if only they were like, they'd be cheaper if they were like the Belgians and they were cheaper if they're like, if they're like the Dutch royal family. But if you want, if there is a voice of moral clarity on the world stage when it comes to climate change, when it comes to um, inequity, when it comes to um, trying to make the world a better place, I suppose. I think there's much more force behind King Charles's voice than perhaps the King of Belgium <laughs> yeah, yeah, or Denmark or yeah, Sweden yeah. or even Japan. I mean, over the decades of your career, you've been on the, the front line or in the midst of so many kind of pivotal historic events. Like you said, it was incredible. So it, does it still, you know, is it still a pinch me moment when you're up up among it? Or do they all kind of blend in all these crazy major events mm. that you're part of? It's a good question. You never, and I actually said this while I was broadcasting um, in a gap while we were on air. You don't actually realize how important these events are and how significant they are, truly, while you're in the middle of them. I did a lot of reporting during the COVID pandemic and that's a once in a 100 year event. Yeah. This was a once in a 70 year event. When I covered the election of Barack Obama and his inauguration, that had never happened before, a black man becoming, an African American becoming president of the United States. But when you're in the moment, you're, you're sort of focused on your job, which is important, obviously. You're focused on getting it right. And you're busy dealing with detail. Mm. It's only when you're able to step away from all that that you see the bigger picture. And reflect on it. Yeah. 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 That's, that's really interesting. I mean, there are so many parts of your career that I'm looking forward to talking to you about as we journey through your life's travel diaries today, Clive. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to start actually at the very beginning. Chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be? That would be myself, my younger brother and younger sister flying with my mother back to Jamaica. And this would be about 1974, 1975. So it was the first time my mum was going back after uh, emigrating from Jamaica to Bolton in Lancashire. So it was a big trip for her. How long, how long was the gap? Well, she um, moved to the United Kingdom uh, in 1962. 
So it was so well over time. a decade, wow. well over a decade. And what a contrast, I imagine. I mean, in terms of from moving from there to England and then to, to go back. Yeah. And for I, you to go there. Yeah, no, absolutely. A, a real contrast, especially as the majority of the Windrush generation, they saw themselves as coming to the UK for five, six years, mm. make a bit of money and get a nest egg together and then move back. The vast majority may have thought that, but the vast majority didn't end up actually doing that. Mm -hmm. They ended up staying. Mm -hmm. So it would have been it would have been a bittersweet moment for my mum to be going back, excited, seeing everyone again, seeing her her parents again, and excited for me and my younger brother and sister seeing the life that they had and um, getting in touch with our roots. Yeah. And all I did was whinge. I mean, I was, what would I have been? I would have been 10, 11, maybe. It was too hot. I was bitten by mosquitoes constantly. Mm. I didn't like the food. Actually, no, that's not true. I did like the food because we had it at home. We had it in Lancashire. Um, but I, really, I remember really missing my school friends mm. um, because it was the summertime. And, I, you know, I would have been out playing football in the backyard with my mates. And I really, really missed all that. And it was just really, really hot. And I was I was prone then, still am to a degree, actually, to travel sickness, mm -hmm. um, even though I spend my time traveling. Um, on planes? Um, less so on planes now, more in cars now. But then it was planes. So I was just sick all the time on that flight. Uh, from from the UK to to Kingston in Jamaica, and then there were cross country journeys along bumpy bush roads um, to see cousins and and, and other relatives, and, and so I just I was just you know throwing up the whole time there. So yeah, it was not 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 the most wonderful travel experience. It has to be said. Is it a place though that you have returned to oh, yeah. as an adult and? Like, yeah. Under much better circumstances. Under, yeah, under better circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and during your childhood, I've I've heard you say before that it was actually really early on that you knew you wanted to be a journalist. Yeah, um, I had a paper round as a kid, and uh, I I read my own product. You know, I got free copies at the end of end of the day, and um, I enjoyed reading what was going on and finding out what was going on in the world. And that, that was, yeah, that was about the same time, actually, sort of, you know, 10, 11, 12. And I found the newspapers and television to be, you know, windows on a wider world that was fascinating to me uh, and interesting and, and different. And I wanted to sort of explore more of that and, and hopefully make a career out of that. And, and yeah. you know, I've managed to managed to do that a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, moving on to chapter two, and that is the first place that you fell in love with, Clive. Which which would you pick for that? The first place I fell in love with, I think it's probably Italy. I love the weather, I love the people, I love the food. Um, and I just, I just found Italians very sort of welcoming and warm. And I, I, I love that. Um, and I've been going back ever since. And I love the, I love the architecture. I love um, opera and it's a place where I've always felt welcome and a place with people who are very sort of outgoing and gregarious and, and in lots of ways they remind me of people from the Caribbean actually. Very welcoming and, and not, not worried about self. Funnily enough, 
in a way, Italians are, it's a home of, you know, international fashion. It is a place where, where people are very conscious of the way they look. But at the same time, they're not that conscious about how they come across. So they're very carefree, very Uninhibited. Easy. Uninhibited, yes. In a way that I think, and I don't mean to upset the French, um, in a way that I don't think the French are. In <laughs> lots of ways. So... Your new series, your road trip through Italy, Clyde mm. Murray's Italian road trip, to mm. be precise. That then must have been the dream gig. Yes, in, in, in lots of ways. I mean, I'd, I'd obviously spent a lot of time in Italy uh, since 1983. And uh, in fact, my wife and I, we go, we go to Verona um, in the summer for the Opera Festival every year. Oh, how gorgeous. Which is, which is wonderful. And uh, yeah, the BBC came to me and said, look, we want to make a travel series. I said, really? And they said, yeah, why not? And I said, hmm, okay, where do you want to go? And I said, well, the idea was that Brits were traveling again after COVID. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't been to Verona for, for two, two and a half years because of, because of the lockdown. So I said, well, why don't we just go to Italy? And, and so you traveled literally throughout Italy. I mean, it was a really extensive mm, journey. Mm. Um, obviously, as you say, you've been there before, but what was your favorite place that you discovered along the way that you hadn't been to before? Mm. I mean, I spent a lot of time in, in Puglia, ah. um, which um, I'd been to before, but only briefly. And uh, I found that to be, to be wonderful, absolutely wonderful. I'm hoping to go there in September. So um, do you have any recommendations as to where I must visit? Well, I mean, I would certainly, certainly go to Matera. Matera is a incredibly old, in fact, I suspect thought to be one of the oldest human settlements. Mm. And it's completely unspoilt. Yeah. You don't see much concrete. No. You don't see many um, uh, bricks. It's all, by and large, stone. And it's, it's, it's a place that is magical because it is unspoiled. It doesn't feel like it's been touched by visually by modernity. Um, and as a result, that it has you know, a really special quality. And you stayed in a cave dwelling there, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... It, it's you know, the, the city built up over time and the dwellings are made of the stone that's carved out of the rock. That left a lot of holes, caves. And over time, centuries, they were used for storage, animals and wine and so on. But as the town got bigger and bigger, Industrial Revolution and so on, um, they're running out of space. So people started living in the caves and some of them are huge, mm. absolutely huge, cavernous. Yeah. People started living in the caves, but in proportion to the people who were living in proper stone dwellings, um, it wasn't very high. You then had the Second World War, rationing problems. Italy was, 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 was in some areas, really badly damaged. And at the end of the war, uh, quite a few more people ended up living in the caves. And the Americans saw photographs of people living in the caves. And they said, oh, my God, this is dreadful. This is poor Europe. We've got to do something. And mm. that was part of the reasoning that they, that General Marshall took to the US Congress that underpinned the Marshall Plan. Wow. The growth of the, the, the rebuilding, the biggest regeneration and rebuilding of uh, a country that had been through war in, in history. Uh, and in fact, it, 
it was relevant to the whole of Western Europe, the rebuilding of Western Europe. But that was part of the evidence that the Americans took to photographs, black and white photographs of people living in the caves in Matera. And do you think that they misunderstood Yes. What was going on there? I th well, they, they either misunderstood what was going on or they deliberately decided right. to misunderstand what was going on. Right. Because, of course, the Americans were terribly anxious about the encroachment of communism from the East. And, you know, it is within, it, it is within regions and areas and um, places that are more than likely poor where perhaps you might get fertile ground for people feeling that they want to mm. move to that kind of that kind of government. Um, and indeed, there are lots of villages and, and towns in in Italy and France that that, that are communist run. Hmm. Yeah, which is which is an interesting thing. But so the Americans thought, okay, we need to rebuild. We need money to do that. I've got to go to Congress to get the money, and here's the proof. You can't have them living in caves. They will be prey to communism. So I think there was, yeah, there was a bit of, uh, there was a bit of um, creative uh, use of those photographs, really. And what did you think of, of sleeping in, in the cave dwelling yourself? It was a bit freaky. Were there any windows? I couldn't really see. Um, there were no windows because it's underground. Yeah. Underground. I, mean, sort of bit, yeah. I wondered if there was one right at the top. Well, well, yeah. what, what you had at the top was like a little slit where you could see um, the pavement above. The pavement. Yeah, you could see. Right. So people were actually walking on top of... <laughs> on top of the of the room effectively yeah and there's a little slit i don't remember i don't remember a wind a, a sort of open view that you had up there of any size i remember a little slit but that was it it was um it was it was interesting it was very very interesting moving on to chapter three that is the place where you learned the most about yourself yeah the place where i learned the most. i suppose i think it might be tokyo Tokyo was my first posting as a foreign correspondent, 1996. I lived there for two years. And um, it made me realize that I, this was what I actually wanted to do as a foreign correspondent, which was travel and see different... And, and while you, you can have those sort of ideas and thoughts as a, as a kid and as a teenager, you know, um, at some point the sort of rubber's got to hit the road type thing. And it could well be that you experience it or you try to do it and then you realize, actually, I don't like this at all. But I realized that I loved, I loved um, just finding out about different people, different cultures, different ideas and thoughts and, um, uh, and sensibilities. The more alien to my own, the better. Mm. And you can't get more different than Japan mm. um, in lots of ways. Um, and Japan is... is probably the most mentioned destination on the podcast either as mm. as all-time favorite destination or destination at the top of the travel bucket list it is just you know so popular All right. but having lived actually lived there is, is, is a different thing altogether yeah so um for all the listeners and guests who are desperate to go there clearly um what would you you know suggest that they do that kind of like a an insider tip having actually you know mm. put down some roots there for a while yeah i mean i would i would definitely contrast town and country so it is a very built up country in lots of ways mm. where you have 
a sort of urban settlements, they tend to be quite crowded. It's a very mountainous country. It's not very flat. And a lot of it is just uninhabitable. Mm. Um, and Tokyo is teeming, yeah. teeming with people. But that is interesting in and of, it, of itself. Um, you know, house sizes are much smaller and people live in tiny sort of, you know, capsule apartments and, and that kind of thing. Um, but it's good to be able to contrast that kind of living with the relative space that you have out in the countryside further north in Hokkaido. And and I sort of found that contrast really quite quite interesting and much more extreme than you would have, say, here in the UK, you know, being in London and then going out into the country. It's a place of, it's a real place of contrasts, you know, built up urban country, fairly sort of sophisticated and international, but at the same time, very uh, conservative, not very modish, away from uh, younger people, perhaps, in the urban centres. Did you find it welcoming? Yes, I did. Intensely so. Yeah, I did. I mean, you know, how deep that goes, that friendliness, I don't know. I mean, you know, Japan, certainly up to the Second World War, had had a reputation for being particularly uh, jingoistic, militaristic and this idea of the purity of of blood was 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 very potent um japan didn't shut down its leper colonies until the mid 90s most other countries did it in the 50s yeah. when there were drugs to control the condition but so that stigma then of 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 you not being pure of you not being one of them that that persisted for a you know way longer than it should have done. Mm. So the suggestion might have been that I, as a black person, would, would have issues. But actually, you had a lot of uh, black American GIs who were part of the occupation force after World War II. So actually, the Japanese got used to seeing black faces in a way that the Chinese, for instance, didn't. Hmm. Um, and the Japanese love baseball. They of love course, basketball. Yeah. And they love, and they love well... Less so soccer. Less so soccer. It's baseball is the is is the mm. sort of the Western game that they are really obsessed about. They're very good at football, actually. Mm. The Japanese um, and their football team is is has done really well in World Cups in the past. Mm. Um, but it's baseball, uh, which has a lot of African American players in the United States, obviously. But they also love jazz. Um, there is a Blue Note Jazz Club in Tokyo. It's one of one of the sort of chain of, of Blue Note Jazz Clubs. Uh, one in New York, one in Paris, and there's one in one in Japan. And, and they, you're a they big love jazz. jazz. I'm, I'm a big jazz fan. A big yeah. jazz fan. Yeah. So so the idea that perhaps you know, given that history of of the purity of the race, and so on, I might have problems. Um, isn't quite isn't quite right, and not what I not what I found. And I mean, you've undertaken innumerable, extremely dangerous uh, assignments throughout your career. When you're covering any kind of war that is bloody and, you know, how does it work in terms of um, logistics and, and you as this foreign correspondent? 
amidst all this other stuff going on around you. I just kind of, I was curious as to how you operate within it. Are all the journalists kept very separate? You know, are you protected therefore? Like, how does it, how does it work in a kind of operations sense? Mm. Or do you just have to go, go in and you're in amongst it? Like, how, mm. how does it work? Well, I mean, you know, mo- most, a lot of the journalists that cover conflicts, we all talk to each other. You know, it would be, obviously, we're all trying to get scoops and we're all trying to get, you know, different things. But at the same time, you know, basic sort of operational stuff, you sort of want to be working together, really, because if you have too many people in the sort of conflict zone, all doing all kinds of different things, then that that can increase the risk of something bad happening. Because the minder for this particular faction involved in the war is having to deal with so many other people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So as a result, by and large, you will stay in the hotel that has the best communications, that probably has hot water, maybe has, you know, a restaurant service or food. And that's where most journalists will gravitate to. So for instance, in Ukraine, there are two main hotels in the center of Kiev. And that's where all the journalists are. We're all together. And and is are they kind of protected? Therefore, like, do you feel safe in them? Yes. I mean, there is a sense that if you're all together, it's unlikely that one of the combatants will want to sort of shell or bomb that particular hotel. Yeah. Or that particular dwelling place. That would only be problematic for whoever did that you're not a combatant you're a journalist you're trying to get at the truth you might have a particular view on the war because you're russian and you have a particular war view on the war because you're ukrainian but there's no reason why you should then want to stop journalists telling the story and if you do want to stop journalists telling the story then what is it you're hiding what is it Mm. that's going on Mm. so by and large the hope is that if we're all together we're not going to get shelled and we're not going to get bombed We'll all have been on hostile environments courses. We'll have got a sense of what it's like to be in a conflict zone Mm. um, and whether or not we can handle it. You know, just the sound, the noise of air raid sirens and shells going off is is disturbing. It's it's, it's, And and does it disturb you? Um, Depends how close it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, And how loud it is. If it's off in the distance, then you know that's that's obviously easier to easier to deal with. I imagine that, like for the the majority of the population, if you were, they said right, we need you to go to Ukraine right now, you'd you'd be feeling largely worried. Do you feel more kind of excited about the opportunity to cover something that is, you know, yeah. huge? Yes, yes, you feel you feel um, excitement. There's an adrenaline rush. It's not as potent as it would have been when I was younger. But you, with, certainly with Ukraine, I'd never been there before. Yeah. And that, that just right. went straight. That just took me straight back to, to my experience in Japan, you know, realizing that uh, this was the kind of thing that I wanted. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. To, to do, to sort of go to different interesting places. And that was a big reason why I ended up going to Ukraine. I'd just never been there before. I wanted to see what it was like. That was that. And I ended up, I thought I'd be there for three, four days. I ended up being there for three weeks. Chapter four is your all-time favorite destination. Well, that is, uh, that, that's an unfair question. <laughs> because you, I mean, you've been to over 80 countries just yeah. in a professional capacity. Just, just in a professional capacity, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I but mean, I'm going to um, push you to pick one. I mean, there are places within places. There are places within countries that are amazing. So the West Coast of America is, is incredibly beautiful and wonderful. Um, you lived there for a time. I, LA, I lived in it? Los Angeles, yeah. yeah. I lived in Los Angeles for for quite a while and the east coast the northern eastern east coast you know maine vermont maryland is amazing too and really beautiful uh, i love japan absolutely love japan uh, there is nowhere more beautiful i think than the english home counties in the summer mm -hmm. um and i adore um france and Italy and parts of Spain. So it's, 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 it's hard. Yeah. I mean, but if I suppose if I had to choose, if I had to choose Cape Town is beautiful as well. If I had to choose, I suppose I could get away with Italy. I could get away with Venice, actually Florence. Okay. Italy there. You made it. It took a and while. I, can't, I can't say that I'm that surprised either. I didn't no, think it would be that not. hard to get to Italy. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because you, because well, you know, only because you've sort of beaten me into submission in having to find somewhere. I mean, you are professionally always doing things that push you out of your comfort zone. This you could view as, you know, a uh, a, a rather pleasant and relaxing jaunt through Italy. But was there anything on this Italian trip that pushed you out of your comfort zone? Would you say? 
Yeah, loads of it. Have you ever tried to steer a gondolier? I absolutely have not, no. And I can't imagine it's very easy. It was hard. It was really hard. Testing your core strength to the max. That's right, that's right, that's right, absolutely. Um, Just keeping your balance. And that was really, really difficult, actually. With cameras on you as well. Yeah, with the director and the producer (laughs) sincerely hoping you fall in. Yeah, yeah, because that's great telly. That's great telly. But I was determined not to fall in, and I didn't. Um, But that was only because I was gripping to the oar for dear life, and I had I had the uh, the guy who was actually doing the 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 steering, as it were, um, you know, very close by. It's not something that is top of my my travel list. I don't think. No. Chapter five, Clive, is your hidden gem. That is a place that you love that my listeners might not know so much about. I love Washington, D.C., the history, the monuments, the galleries. But I also love the architecture of Georgetown. Mm. That sort of Federalist Georgian look, which is very symmetrical, which is probably why I like Italy. Very Palladian. It's very, very symmetrical. It's very ordered. It's very um, straightforward and understandable. It's not sort of, you know, all over the place and weird curves and stuff. And I love that and the different colors, different buildings being painted different colors. And, I, so, and it's, it's, um, it's got some great restaurants. Yeah, I've heard um, it's got an amazing food scene. It has. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, it was a while since I lived there. But I do remember a wonderful Ethiopian restaurant on M Street, which was just down from the the BBC Bureau, which was wonderful. And great Italians too, great Italian restaurants. But it's a city that sort of, for me, feels very sort of complete. uh, It's not just the centre of the world in terms of foreign policy. So it feels like you're somewhere substantial. Mm. It's, you can walk around it, it's quite small. It's only about, at the core, about 700,000 people. Yeah. It's beautiful to look at and as i say it is it's full of it's full of wonderful galleries and and wonderful places where you know you can get lost for quite a yeah. few hours yeah um so I think yeah that's a great a great recommendation and i mean speaking of dc and high high profile interviews of which you've had many i imagine there um over the years you know which which perhaps sticks out in your mind there you know, I've 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 been I've been in the same room as Obama and Bush and Clinton, where they've been giving speeches, mm. and you do feel that sense of American power. I mean, it, that aura is 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 there with those leaders. Curiously, it isn't there with Trump, and it isn't there with Trump. I think because because he has so much baggage that he brought to the table before he became president that defined him as a human being and defined who he was, yes. which meant that the office couldn't define him of, pres- yeah. of, the, of the presidency. Yeah. And I went to a, one of his rallies and it, mm. was, it was just a, a bloke on a stage speaking as opposed to someone of import speaking, it felt to me anyway, which, is, which I think is quite quite interesting yeah i mean i don't know how far we can well you'll have to tell me in terms of what we can talk about and in terms of um impartiality and things so Mm. feel free to stop me but i mean those those leaders that you mention 
um they they strike me as you know it's kind of char- charismatic politics in a way in that they as well as oh trump is incredibly charismatic i mean no question yeah. oh absolutely yeah absolutely but it's it's there's no question about that and that's why i mean you know in the last election 70 million americans voted for him yeah so he has charisma it's not about charisma and in fact i was going to say there's probably less charisma with george w bush than there is with trump but actually George W. Bush was charismatic in his own way, mm. um, to be honest with you. It was, I suppose... A distinction between like gravitas and charisma. I, think, I yeah. think that's what it is. I think it's gravitas. Yeah. I think it's a sense that this particular person is on top of it, whatever it is, yeah. when it comes to how the world operates and how the world works. And you just didn't get the sense that Trump was on top of it. Um, (laughs) You know, that, that it was, that it wasn't about policy and it wasn't about ideas. It felt like it was all about him. It felt a lot smaller and thinner and readier. His sense of how the world should work. Yeah. It felt as if it was about him and not a grand vision which is what you'd want the leader of the free world to have, which is essentially what they are. American but but speaking about being on top of it, like then here in the UK, more in recent times politically, have you felt that the leaders of our country have been on top of it? COVID was hard for everybody, everything, every single world leader. The economic financial crash was hard for everyone. No question. This is regardless of political stripe. And, you know, dealing with European war, the first of any major scale since World War Two, is difficult for for anyone to have to deal with as well. So I mean I'm 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 being cagey here for those impartiality reasons, but I think it hasn't been an easy time. And it is in those difficult times that you find out how good your governing or political class is. But I think globally, there's been a lot that hasn't worked. And I don't know if that is a reflection on the quality of our leaders globally, or whether the problems have just been too big for those leaders to have to to deal with yeah but i think you know we've been we've been left wanting on a whole manner of fronts well clive our penultimate chapter is your worst travel experience chapter six worst travel experience most of my worst travel experiences have involved war zones getting in but most of the time getting out and usually because there's something else that i need to do like see my family and 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 get home by christmas I mean, I remember having real difficulty getting out of Afghanistan Christmas time. I was in Tora Bora and um, the Americans, the coalition thought they'd cornered Osama bin Laden in this mountainous area between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And they had B-52 bombers, huge great things that were just bombing the hell out of this area. Um, and I was covering the story there but get it I mean it was I don't know six seven hour drive to get to this mountainous area and then six hour hours you're sleeping in tents and 
all this kind of stuff and it was right up to christmas and i really wanted to get home for christmas and um and it was really hard getting out and really difficult getting out yeah and you know trying to get out of iraq to get to amman to get a flight to get back home i remember we we got stuck by sandstorms and it was oh it was horrible it was absolutely horrible and more Um, recently in ukraine you had this terrible car accident yeah, that was well. That that was. I wasn't trying to leave. That was just. That was just a blowout. Tire blowout. Yeah, the so, back like tire bad just. Bad luck. That was just bad luck. Just tire just blew and, and it the, rolled over four times. Yeah, was yeah. that the, the kind of most kind of near near miss you've had? Would you say? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I think so. I think so. I remember as it rolled over, just thinking, and it rolled over four times because I don't remember this. But it rolled four times, apparently, because the security vehicle that we had behind us saw it roll four, t- four times. I yeah. I only remember it, I don't remember it rolling, in fact. All that seems to have gone out of my head. I just remember thinking, I've just got to protect my head, protect my head, stop it hitting the, the roof of the vehicle. Um, but now I was in Afghanistan in, in the late 90s. Uh, the Taliban had taken over. It was Ramadan had just come to an end. And I was in a coffee shop, breakfast place. A Taliban fighter came in, he wanted two eggs. Loads of people had got in there before him. Fasting had ended because Ramadan was over. It was Eid. And um, the guy behind the counter said, we haven't got any eggs. And he took his Kalashnikov out and he said, I'm going to kill everyone in this restaurant, in this place, if you don't get me two eggs because I am absolutely starving. And if you don't eat, you're irritable. And he was irritable. And he was the law. The Taliban were the law. They could do whatever they liked. So there would be no problem. I mean, I hid behind a pillar because I thought he was going to just spray everywhere with, with AK bullets. Oh, my God. Uh, and um, and uh, the guy behind the counter, he, he produced two eggs. Oh, my gosh. Thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, so before the vehicle rolled four times, that was the closest I thought, oh, my God. Yeah. This guy's just going to lose it. And as I say, the thing and for, was... And, and really, you know, for eggs at the end of the day, that for, wouldn't have been... For the, food in his belly. Yeah. So to, to die for two two eggs, a couple no. of omelettes, scrambled eggs, you know. I mean, it's just, you know, yeah. that's, that's well, weird. We can be forever grateful that they found some eggs they in the back found of some the eggs pantry in, in the that back. restaurant. They did a lot of searching. <laughs> <laughs> and they found the eggs. Clive, I honestly could chat to you for the rest of the day. I mean, it has been so fascinating. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We're on the final chapter of your travel diaries, chapter seven. And that mm-hmm. is the destination at the top of your travel bucket list. The place that I would love to go to is St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen a lot. I've heard a lot. I love to go to Moscow as well. Russia, basically. And I'm now banned. Forever? Would you ever feel safe going there now, do you think? Not while Putin was in power, no. No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And uh, if I set foot in there and I got, uh, and I was stopped, I would be, I would be done on spying charges, I'm sure. Mm. That, that's the one place on earth I would love to go. I really wanted to go to um, Sri Lanka. I'd never been to Sri Lanka and I I was there maybe four or five years ago covering, covering the, uh, the attack on a, a, uh, a church there by Islamic extremists. 
So I went under horrible circumstances, um, but I managed to see a little bit of the place. But no, it would be Russia. It would be Russia. It would be Russia, yeah. Particularly now that I have a f- newfound interest in Eastern Europe that, that I never really had. Communism, communism, communism always struck me as being really much sadder in colder places. So I could handle being in Vietnam or Cuba or Angola, but, you know... Tajikistan in the middle of winter. Not great. (laughs) (laughs) Not great. Communism was always much more attractive in Cuba than it ever was in Belarus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, On that note, Clive Murray, thank you so much. Those were your travel diaries. (laughs) Pleasure. Thank you. Ah, huge thank you to Clive. What an interesting life he has led. Clive Myrie's Italian road trip. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Trip is available on BBC iPlayer now. Get ready to be transported to. That beautiful country. It's a fantastic watch. Thanks so much for listening today. If you'd like to hear more from the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to press follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. If you want to be the first to find out who's joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. I'm at Holly Rubenstein and you'll also find me on Twitter and TikTok as of a few weeks ago, also at Holly Rubenstein. And if you can't wait until then, remember there's the first eight seasons to catch up on. That's over 90 episodes to keep you busy there. All the destinations mentioned by my guests are included in the episode show notes here on your podcast app and listed on my website, thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thanks everyone, and I'll be back next week.